Phase the Sixth, The Convert, Part Two. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Forty Seven. It is the threshing of the last wheat rick at Flintcomb Ash Farm. The dawn of the March morning is singularly inexpressive, and there is nothing to show where the eastern horizon lies. Against the twilight rises the trapezoidal top of the stack, which has stood forlornly here through the washing and bleaching of the wintry weather. When Is Hewitt and Tess arrived at the scene of operations, only a rustling denoted that others had preceded them, to which, as the light increased, there were presently added the silhouettes of two men on the summit. They were busily unhaling the rick, that is, stripping off the thatch before beginning to throw down the sheaves. And while this was in progress, Is and Tess, with the other women workers, in their whitey-brown pinners, stood waiting and shivering, Farmer Groby having insisted upon their being on the spot thus early to get the job over, if possible, by the end of the day. Close under the eaves of the stack, and as yet barely visible, was the red tyrant that the women had come to serve, a timber-framed construction, with straps and wheels appertaining, the threshing-machine, which, whilst it was going, kept up a despotic demand upon the endurance of their muscles and nerves. A little way off there was another indistinct figure, this one black, with a sustained hiss that spoke of strength very much in reserve. The long chimney running up beside an ash-tree, and the warmth which radiated from the spot, explained without the necessity of much daylight that here was the engine which was to act as the primum mobile of this little world. By the engine stood a dark motionless being, a sooty and grimy embodiment of tallness, in a sort of trance, with a heap of coals by his side. It was the engine-man. The isolation of his manner and colour lent him the appearance of a creature from Tophet, who had strayed into the pellucid smokelessness of this region of yellow grain and pale soil, with which he had nothing in common, to amaze and discompose its aborigines. What he looked, he felt. He was in the agricultural world, but not of it. He served fire and smoke. These denizens of the fields served vegetation, weather, frost, and sun. He travelled with his engine from farm to farm, from county to county, for as yet the steam-threshing machine was itinerant in this part of Wessex. He spoke in a strange northern accent, his thoughts being turned inwards upon himself, his eye on his iron charge, hardly perceiving the scenes around him, and caring for them not at all. Holding only strictly necessary intercourse with the natives, as if some ancient doom compelled him to wander here against his will in the service of his plutonic master. The long strap which ran from the driving-wheel of his engine to the red thresher under the rick was the sole tie-line between agriculture and him. While they uncovered the sheaves he stood apathetic beside his portable repository of force, round whose hot blackness the morning air quivered. He had nothing to do with preparatory labour. His fire was waiting, incandescent, his steam was at high pressure. In a few seconds he would make the long strap move at an invisible velocity. Beyond its extent the environment might be corn, straw, or chaos. It was all the same to him. 
If any of the octophonous idlers asked him what he called himself, he replied shortly, An engineer. The rick was unhailed by full daylight. The men then took their places, the women mounted, and the work began. Farmer Groby, or as they called him, he, had arrived ere this, and by his orders Tess was placed on the platform of the machine, close to the man who fed it, her business being to untie every sheaf of corn handed on to her by Is Hewitt, who stood next but on the rick, so that the feeder could seize it and spread it over the revolving drum, which whisked out every grain in one moment. They were soon in full progress, after a preparatory hitch or two, which rejoiced the hearts of those who hated machinery. The work sped on till breakfast-time, when the thresher was stopped for half an hour, and on starting again after the meal, the whole supplementary strength of the farm was thrown into the labor of constructing the straw-rick, which began to grow beside the stack of corn. A hasty lunch was eaten as they stood, without leaving their positions, and then another couple of hours brought them near to dinner-time the inexorable wheel continuing to spin, and the penetrating hum of the thresher to thrill to the very marrow all who were near the revolving wire-cage. The old man on the rising straw-rick talked of the past days when they had been accustomed to thresh with flails on the oaken barn floor, when everything, even to winnowing, was affected by hand-labor, which, to their thinking, though slow, produced better results. Those, too, on the corn-rick talked a little, but the perspiring ones at the machine, including Tess, could not lighten their duties by the exchange of many words. It was the ceaselessness of the work which tried her so severely, and began to make her wish that she had never come to Flitcombe Ash. The women on the corn-rick, Marian, who was one of them in particular, could stop to drink ale or cold tea from the flagon now and then, or to exchange a few gossiping remarks while they wiped their faces, or cleared the fragments of straw and husk from their clothing. But for Tass there was no respite, for as the drum never stopped, the man who fed it could not stop, and she, who had to supply the man with untied sheaves, could not stop either, unless Marian changed places with her, which she sometimes did for half an hour in spite of Groby's objections that she was too slow-handed for a feeder. For some probably economical reason it was usually a woman who was chosen for this particular duty, and Groby gave as his motive in selecting Tess that she was one of those who best combined strength with quickness in untying, and both with staying power, and this may have been true. The hum of the thrasher, which prevented speech, increased to a raving whenever the supply of corn fell short of the regular quantity. As Tess and the man who fed could never turn their heads, she did not know that just before the dinner hour a person had come silently into the field by the gate, and had been standing under a second rick, watching the scene and Tess in particular. He was dressed in a tweed suit of fashionable pattern, and he twirled a gay walking-cane. "'Who is that?' said Is Hewitt to Marian. She had at first addressed the inquiry to Tess, but the latter could not hear it. "'Somebody's fancy man, I suppose,' said Marian, laconically. "'I'll lay a guinea he's after Tess.' "'Oh, no, tis a ranter parson who's been sniffing about her lately, not a dandy like this.' "'Well, this is the same man. 
the same man as the preacher, but he's quite different. He have left off his black coat and white neckerchief, and have cut off his whiskers, but he's the same man for all that. Do you really think so? Then I'll tell her, said Marian. Don't. She'll see him soon enough, good now. Well, I don't think it at all right for him to join his preaching to courtin' a married woman, even though her husband might be abroad, and she in a sense a widow. Oh, he can do her no harm, said Is dryly. Her mind can no more be heaved from that one place where it do bide than a studded wagon from the hole he's in. Lord love ye, never caught payin' nor preachin', nor the seven thunders themselves can wean a woman when twould be better for her that she should be weaned. Dinner time came, and the whirling ceased, whereupon Tess left her post, her knees trembling so wretchedly with the shaking of the machine that she could scarcely walk. "'You ought to have a quarter drink into ye, as I've done,' said Marian. "'You wouldn't look so white, then.' "'Why, souls above us, your face is as if you'd been hag-road.' It occurred to the good-natured Marian that, as Tess was so tired, her discovery of her visitor's presence might have had the bad effect of taking away her appetite, and Marian was thinking of inducing Tess to descend by a ladder on the further side of the stack, when the gentleman came forward and looked up. Tess uttered a short little, "Oh." And a moment after, she said, quickly, "'I shall eat my dinner here, right on the rick.' Sometimes, when they were so far from their cottages, they all did this. But as there was rather a keen wind going to-day, Marian and the rest descended, and sat under the straw stack. The newcomer was, indeed, Alec d'Urberville, the late evangelist, despite his changed attire and aspect. It was obvious at a glance that the original Veldlust had come back, that he had restored himself, as nearly as a man could do who had grown three or four years older, to the old jaunty slapdash guise under which Tess had first known her admirer, and cousin so-called. Having decided to remain where she was, Tess sat down among the bundles out of sight of the ground and began her meal till by and by she heard footsteps on the ladder and immediately after alec appeared upon the stack now an oblong and level platform of sheaves he strode across them and sat down opposite of her without a word tess continued to eat her modest dinner a slice of thick pancake which she had brought with her the other workfolk were by this time all gathered under the rick where the loose straw formed a comfortable retreat "'I am here again, as you see,' said D'Urberville. "'Why do you trouble me so?' she cried, reproach flashing from her very finger-ends. "'I trouble you. I think I may ask, why do you trouble me? Sure I don't trouble you any when. You say you don't, but you do. You haunt me.' Those very eyes that you turned upon me with such a bitter flash a moment ago, they come to me just as you showed them then, in the night and in the day. Tess, ever since you told me of that child of yours, it is just as if my feelings, which have been flowing in a strong puritanical stream, had suddenly found a way open in the direction of you, and had all at once gushed through. 
the religious channel is left dry forthwith, and it is you who have done it. She gazed in silence. What? You have given up your preaching entirely? she asked. She had gathered from Angel sufficient of the incredulity of modern thought to despise flash enthusiasm, but as a woman she was somewhat appalled. In affected severity, D'Urberville continued. Entirely. I have broken every engagement since that afternoon I was to address the drunkards at Casterbridge Fair. The deuce only knows what I am thought of by the brethren. <laughs> the brethren! No doubt they pray for me, weep for me, for they are kind people in their way. But what do I care? How could I go on with the thing when I had lost my faith in it? It would have been hypocrisy of the basest kind. Among them I should have stood like Hymenius and Alexander, who were delivered over to Satan that they might learn not to blaspheme. What a grand revenge you have taken! I saw you innocent, and I deceived you. Four years later you find me a Christian enthusiast. You then work upon me, perhaps to my complete perdition. But, Tass, my cause, as I used to call you, this is only my way of talking, and you must not look so horribly concerned. Of course you have done nothing except retain your pretty face and shapely figure. I saw it on the rick before you saw me, that tight pinafore thing sets it off, and the wing-bonnets. You feel girls should never wear those bonnets if you wish to keep out of danger. He regarded her silently for a few moments, and with a short, cynical laugh resumed. <laughs> I believe that if the bachelor apostle, whose deputy I thought I was, had been tempted by such a pretty face, he would have let go the plough for her sake as I do. Tess attempted to expostulate, but at this juncture, all her fluency failed her, and without heeding, he added, Well, this paradise that you supply is perhaps as good as any other, after all. But to speak seriously, Tess. D'Urberville rose and came nearer, reclining sideways amid the sheaves and resting upon his elbow. Since I last saw you, I have been thinking of what you said that he said. I have come to the conclusion that there does seem rather a want of common sense in these threadbare old propositions. How I could have been so fired by poor Parson Clare's enthusiasm, and have gone so madly to work, transcending even him, I cannot make out. As for what you said last time, on the strength of your wonderful husband's intelligence, whose name you have never told me, about having what they call an ethical system without any dogma. I don't see my way to that at all. Why, you can have the religion of loving-kindness and purity, at least, if you can't have—what do you call it—dogma? Oh, no, I'm a different sort of fellow from that. If there's nobody to say, do this, and it will be a good thing for you after you are dead, do that, and it will be a bad thing for you. I can't warm up. Hang it! I am not going to feel responsible for my deeds and passions, 
if there's nobody to be responsible to, and if I were you, my dear, I wouldn't either. She tried to argue and tell him that he had mixed in his dull brain two matters, theology and morals, which in the primitive days of mankind had been quite distinct. But owing to Angel Clare's reticence, to her absolute want of training, and to her being a vessel of emotions rather than reasons, she could not go on. Well, never mind, he resumed. Here I am, my love, as in the old times. Not as then, never as then. Tis different, she entreated, and there was never warmth with me. Oh, why didn't you keep your faith, yet the loss of it has brought you to speak to me like this? Because you've knocked it out of me, so the evil be upon your sweet head. Your husband little thought how his teaching would recoil upon him. <laughs> I'm awfully glad you have made an apostate of me all the same. Tess, I am more taken with you than ever and I pity you, too. For all your closeness, I see you are in a bad way, neglected by one who ought to cherish you. She could not get her morsels of food down her throat. Her lips were dry, and she was ready to choke. The voices and laughs of the workfolk eating and drinking under the rick came to her as if they were a quarter of a mile off. "'It is cruelty to me,' she said. How—how how can you treat me to this talk, if you care ever so little for me? True, he said, wincing a little. I did not come to reproach you for my deeds. I came, Tess, to say that I don't like you to be working like this, and I have come on purpose for you. You say you have a husband who is not I. Well, perhaps you have— but I've never seen him, and you've not told me his name, and altogether he seems rather a mythological personage. However, even if you have one, I think I am nearer to you than he is. I, at any rate, try to help you out of trouble, but he does not, bless his invisible face. The words of the stern prophet Hosea that I used to read come back to me. Don't you know them, Tess? and she shall follow after her lover, but she shall not overtake him, and she shall seek him, but shall not find him. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then was it better with me than now. Tess, my trap is waiting just under the hill, and, darling mine, not his, you know the rest. Her face had been rising to a dull crimson fire while he spoke, but she did not answer. "'You have been the cause of my backsliding,' he continued, stretching his arm towards her waist. "'You should be willing to share it, and leave that mule you call husband forever.' One of her leather gloves, which she had taken off to eat her skimmer cake, lay in her lap, and without the slightest warning, she passionately swung the glove by the gauntlet directly in his face. It was heavy and thick as a warrior's, and it struck him flat on the mouth. Fancy might have regarded the act as the recrudescence of a trick in which her armed progenitors were not unpractised. Alec fiercely started up from his reclining position. 
a scarlet oozing appeared where her blow had alighted and in a moment the blood began dropping from his mouth upon the straw but he soon controlled himself calmly drew his handkerchief from his pocket and mopped his bleeding lips she too had sprung up but she sank down again now punish me she said turning up her eyes to him with the hopeless defiance of the sparrow's gaze before its captor twists its neck whip me crush me you need not mind those people under the rick i shall not cry out once victim always victim that's the law oh no no tess he said blandly i can make full allowance for this yet you most unjustly forget one thing that i would have married you if you had not put it out of my power to do so did i not ask you flatly to be my wife eh? answer me you did and you cannot be but remember one thing his voice hardened as his temper got the better of him with the recollection of his sincerity in asking her and her present ingratitude and he stepped across to her side and held her by the shoulders so that she shook under his grasp remember my lady i was your master once i will be your master again if you are any man's wife you are mine the threshers now began to stir below so much for our quarrel he said letting her go now i shall leave you and shall come again for your answer during the afternoon you don't know me yet but i know you she had not spoken again remaining as if stunned d'urberville retreated over the sheaves and descended the ladder while the workers below rose and stretched their arms and shook down the beer they had drunk then the threshing machine started afresh and amid the renewed rustle of the straw tess resumed her position by the buzzing drum as one in a dream untying sheaf after sheaf in endless succession chapter forty eight in the afternoon the farmer made it known that the rick was to be finished that night since there was a moon by which they could see to work and the man with the engine was engaged for another farm on the morrow hence the twanging and humming and rustling proceeded with even less intermission than usual it was not till namet time about three o'clock that tess raised her eyes and gave a momentary glance round she felt but little surprise at seeing that alec d'urberville had come back and was standing under the hedge by the gate he had seen her lift her eyes and waved his hand urbanely to her while he blew her a kiss it meant that their quarrel was over tess looked down again and carefully abstained from gazing in that direction thus the afternoon dragged on the wheat rick shrank lower and the straw rick grew higher and the corn sacks were carted away at six o'clock the wheat rick was about shoulder high from the ground but the unthreshed sheaves remaining untouched seemed countless still notwithstanding the enormous numbers that had been gulped down by the insatiable swallower fed by the man and tess through whose two young hands the greater part of them had passed 
and the immense stack of straw where in the morning there had been nothing appeared as the feces of the same buzzing red glutton from the west sky in a wrathful shine all that wild march could afford in the way of sunset had burst forth after a cloudy day flooding the tired and sticky faces of the threshers and dyeing them with a coppery light as also the flapping garments of the women which clung to them like dull flames a panting ache ran through the rick the man who fed was weary and tess could see that the red nape of his neck was encrusted with dirt and husks she still stood at her post her flushed and perspiring face coated with the corn dust and her white bonnet embrowned by it she was the only woman whose place was upon the machine so as to be shaken bodily by its spinning and the decrease of the stack now separated her from marion and is and prevented their changing duties with her as they had done the incessant quivering in which every fibre of her frame participated had thrown her into a stupefied reverie in which her arms worked on independently of her consciousness she hardly knew where she was and did not hear is hewitt tell her from below that her hair was tumbling down by degrees the freshest among them began to grow cadaverous and saucer-eyed whenever tess lifted her head she beheld always the great upgrown straw stack with the men in shirt-leaves upon it against the grey north sky in front of it the long red elevator like a jacob's ladder on which a perpetual stream of threshed straw ascended a yellow river running uphill and spouting out on the top of the rick she knew that alec d'urberville was still on the scene observing her from some point or other though she could not say where there was an excuse for his remaining for when the threshed rick drew near its final sheaves a little ratting was always done and men unconnected with the threshing sometimes dropped in for that performance sporting characters of all descriptions gents with terriers and facetious pipes roughs with sticks and stones but there was another hour's work before the layer of live rats at the base of the stack would be reached and as the evening light in the direction of the giant's hill by abbot's colonel dissolved away the white-faced moon of the season arose from the horizon that lay towards middleton abbey and shottsford on the other side for the last hour or two marian had felt uneasy about tess whom she could not get near enough to speak to the other women having kept up their strength by drinking ale and tess having done without it through traditionary dread owing to its results at her home in childhood but tess still kept going if she could not fill her part she would have to leave and this contingency which she would have regarded with equanimity and, and even with relief a month or two earlier had become a terror since d'urberville had begun to hover round her the sheaf pitchers and feeders had now worked the rick so low that people on the ground could talk to them to tessa's surprise farmer groby came up on the machine to her and said that if she desired to join her friend he did not wish to keep her any longer and would send somebody else to take her place the friend was d'urberville she knew and also that this concession had been granted in obedience to the request of that friend or enemy she shook her head and toiled on the time for the rat-catching arrived at last and the hunt began the creatures had crept downwards with the subsidence of the rick till they were all together at the bottom 
and being now uncovered from their last refuge, they ran across the open ground in all directions, a loud shriek from the by this time half-tipsy Marion, informing her companions that one of the rats had invaded her person, a terror which the rest of the women had guarded against by various schemes of skirt-tucking and self-elevation. The rat was at last dislodged, and, amid the barking of dogs, masculine shouts, feminine screams, oaths, stampings, and the confusion as of pandemonium, Tess untied her last sheaf, the drum slowed, the whizzing ceased, and she stepped from the machine to the ground. Her lover, who had only looked on at the rat-catching, was promptly at her side. "'What, after all, my insulting slap, too!' said she in an underbreath. She was so utterly exhausted that she had not strength to speak louder. I should indeed be foolish to feel offended at anything you say or do, he answered, in the seductive voice of the Trentridge time. How the little limbs tremble! You are as weak as a bled calf, you know you are, and yet you need have done nothing since I arrived. How could you be so obstinate? However, I have told the farmer that he has no right to employ women at steam-threshing. It is not proper work for them, and on all the better class of farms it has been given up, as he knows very well. I will walk with you as far as your home. Oh, yes, she answered with a jaded gait. Walk with me, if you will. I do bear in mind that you came to marry me before you knew of my state. Perhaps you are a little better and kinder than I have been thinking you were. Whatever is meant as kindness I am grateful for. Whatever is meant in any other way I am angered at. I cannot sense your meaning sometimes. If I cannot legitimize our former relations, at least I can assist you. And I will do it with much more regard for your feelings than I formerly showed. My religious mania or whatever it was, is over. But I retain a little good nature. I hope I do. Now, Tess, by all that's tender and strong between man and woman, trust me. I have enough, and more than enough, to put you out of anxiety, both for yourself and your parents and sisters. I can make them all comfortable if you will only show confidence in me. Have you seen them lately? she quickly inquired. Yes. They didn't know where you were. It was only by chance that I found you here. The cold moon looked aslant upon Tessa's fagged face between the twigs of the garden hedge, as she paused outside the cottage which was her temporary home, D'Urberville pausing beside her. Don't mention my little brothers and sisters. Don't make me break down quite, she said. If you want to help them, God knows they need it. Do it without telling me. But no, no, she cried, I will take nothing from you, either for them or for me. He did not accompany her further, since, as she lived with the household, all was public indoors. No sooner had she herself entered, laved herself in a washing-tub, and shared supper with the family, than she fell into thought and withdrawing to a table under the wall by the light of her own little lamp, wrote, in a passionate mood, 
my own husband let me call you so i must even if it makes you angry to think of such an unworthy wife as i i must cry to you in my trouble i have no one else i am so exposed to temptation angel i fear to say who it is and i do not like to write about it at all but i cling to you in a way you cannot think can you not come to me now at once before anything terrible happens oh i know you cannot because you are so far away i think i must die if you do not come soon or or tell me to come to you the punishment you have measured out to me is deserved i do know that well deserved and you are right and just to be angry with me but angel please please not to be just only a little kind to me even if i do not deserve it and come to me if you would come i could die in your arms i would be well content to do that if so be you had forgiven me angel i live entirely for you i love you too much to blame you for going away and i and i know it was necessary you should find a farm do not think i shall say a word of sting or bitterness only come back to me i am desolate without you my darling oh so desolate i do not mind having to work but if you will send me one little line and say i am coming soon i will bide on angel oh so cheerfully it has been so much my religion ever since we were married to be faithful to you in every thought and look that even when a man speaks a compliment to me before i am aware it seems wronging you have you never felt one little bit of what you used to feel when we were at the dairy if you have how can you keep away from me i am the same woman angel as you fell in love with yes the very same not the one you disliked but never saw what was the past to me as soon as i met you it was a dead thing altogether i became another woman filled full of new life from you how could i be the only one why do you not see this dear if you would only be a little more conceited and believe in yourself so far as to see that you were strong enough to work this change in me you would perhaps be in a mind to come to me your poor wife how silly i was in my happiness when i thought i could trust you always to love me i ought to have known that such as that was not for poor me but i am sick at heart not only for old times but for the present think think how it do hurt my heart not to see you ever ever oh, if i could only make your dear heart ache one little minute of each day as mine does every day and all day long it might lead you to show pity to your poor lonely one people still say that i am rather pretty angel 
handsome is the word they use, since I wish to be truthful. Perhaps I am what they say, but I do not value my good looks. I only like to have them because they belong to you, my dear, and that there may be at least one thing about me worth your having. So much have I felt this, that when I met with annoyance on account of the same, I tied up my face in a bandage as long as people would believe in it. Oh, angel, I tell you all this not from vanity. You will certainly know I do not, but only that you may come to me. If you really cannot come to me, will you let me come to you? I am, as I say, worried, pressed to do what I will not do. It cannot be that I shall yield one inch, yet I am in terror as to what an accident might lead to, and I so defenceless on account of my first error. I cannot say more about this. It makes me too miserable. But if I break down by falling into some fearful snare, my last state will be worse than my first. Oh, God, I cannot think of it. Let me come at once, or at once come to me. I would be content, I glad to live with you as your servant, if I may not as your wife, so that I could only be near you, and get glimpses of you, and think of you as mine. The daylight has nothing to show me, since you are not here, and I don't like to see the rooks and starlings in the field, because I grieve and grieve to miss you who used to see them with me. I long for only one thing in heaven or earth or under the earth, to meet you, my own dear. Come to me, come to me and save me from what threatens me. Your faithful, heartbroken Tess End of Part 2